our series called Biblia Obscura, where we are looking at some of the most obscure parts of the Bible. Um, and I'm not going over the controversial parts. This isn't like hot topics. Um, I'm trying to go over the parts that are so non-controversial that we often just skip them or we overlook them. Um, the parts that maybe don't seem very important. Um, the parts that we are likely to struggle with. And I don't just want to leave you on your own to figure out like, hey, here's what you can get out of it. I want to try to equip us here to handle these obscure parts of the Bible. Um, because we believe... What it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed, it's useful, it's profitable for us. But then I know all too often that then we come up to different parts of the Bible, like genealogies, like a story of a guy touching the Ark of the Covenant and then dying, and all these strange things. And we wonder, well, what on earth is there here for me? How is this important? And so we're going through um, some of those, some of those stories. And I also just want to remind all of us that these stories and this series isn't just for like the advanced Bible student who's able to figure everything out, but Jesus is also just, he's looking for listeners. He's looking for listeners. And so that's what we want to do, is we want to equip one another and ourselves to rightly learn who Jesus is through some of the most obscure parts of the Bible. So we've been doing a lot of research into what are the things that Christians are most likely to skip, what are the books of the Bible that we're least likely to study. Um, and as I did research into that, today we're actually going to look into an entire book um, it's actually the least preached and teached book in all of the New Testament, as far as what I can find. Um, it is the third least taught and preached book in the entire Bible, and that is the book of 3 John. The book of 3 John, um, which if you didn't know, 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible. Um, it's the shortest in the Greek. Some of you, if you're real into Google, you might find... The book of Jude is a little shorter in English, but if you're familiar with Greek, then you know that Jude wrote like Yoda, and it didn't make any sense in the Greek, and so there's a lot of words in Greek, and then it was shortened into English, but the third John is the true shortest book in the entire Bible, and because of that, and because it's kind of this weird, obscure book, it's more of like a little letter, that we're often likely to skip it. Um, it doesn't have a whole lot of quotable little memory verses that us English-speaking Americans like the most. We tend to love those, you know, those good, quotable, social media, shareable books of the Bible. And John doesn't really give us too many of those in the book of 3 John. So all too often, we're tempted to skip it. Um, or many of us have probably just read it, and we read through it so fast, we're like, oh, okay, I don't really know what I get out of that. But so we, we want to encourage us today, we're going to pause, we're going to look at it, and we're not going to skip it. Um, because again, we believe that these aren't just words on a page, that this is a voice captured. This is the voice of God captured for us to reveal his son to us. So we want to approach God's word rightly. Um, but also, one of the things that we are continually learning, especially with the book of 3 John, is that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't really written to us. And it can be very hard to read it. You have to acknowledge that it's not just always as simple, especially the book of 3 John. Because the book of 3 John, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. John was inspired in a unique way to write this. But he was writing to a specific person about a specific situation. And what we're doing in reading the book of 3 John is we're kind of just snooping through John's email here. Um, and we read, okay, he's going to address this person and this issue and this thing. And when we read that, it can be hard for us to wonder, like, well, what does this have to do really with our lives, with Common Ground Church, with Christians in Rapid City, South Dakota? What am I supposed to do with this? I think it's important for us to do our due diligence to listen to the voice of God here. So we're going to look at the book of 3 John. Like I said, we're basically looking at John's email here, because he's writing to a specific person. Uh, this book is not very theological, it's very practical, very relational. He's addressing an issue, he's talking about a bit of a plan that he's coming forward with, and he's encouraging this guy who's doing this. And so if you're familiar with the books of the New Testament, then you'll know that the books of the New Testament come in a bunch of different genres, or a bunch of different types. Um, there's, of course, the Gospels, which are like the narratives of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, there are the Pauline epistles, or the letters of Paul, which is where Paul wrote to specific churches, whole bodies, like Romans, Corinthians, and he's saying, hey, read this out loud to the whole church. This is a teaching I want everyone to hear. Um, then there are general epistles, which are kind of like Paul's letters there, but these general epistles or letters were written by Peter, James, John, Jude, can kind of fall into that category. 
Um, and most, the other two letters from John, first and second John, really fall into that category. They're just general letters to Christians, kind of about these things. Then there's this category called pastoral epistles, or the pastoral letters, where Paul wrote to two specific people, Timothy and Titus, and he was essentially telling them how to be pastors. He was giving them leadership advice. He was being their pastor, and he wrote these letters to them. And then, of course, there's apocalyptic, uh, which is the book of Revelation, and that's a whole other beast of its own there in the New Testament. But one of the things that everyone argues about is what exactly is 3 John? Because 3 John, it was written by John, and those usually fall into the general epistles, but yet the general epistles are supposed to kind of be read in public, read to the whole church. And yet John, he wrote more like a pastoral epistle, where he's saying, hey, I'm sending an email to this person, and it's about this specific situation. Um, and it wasn't really meant to be read necessarily in public. It was kind of this private thing that John was telling him there. Um, but yet, the person that John was writing to wasn't necessarily the leader of the church. It doesn't seem like he was the leader. It was just, hey, here's an email from John to a leader, to a Christian in this church. So oftentimes we look at that and we go, well, what do we even do with this? That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at today to see, okay, well, what do we do with a strange little piece of the New Testament that we always want to skip? So this funny little book of 3 John, I think, has a lot, a lot for us. Kind of a strange little piece of literature here, but it's something we absolutely should not skip. And what John is really doing here, what John is doing in this book that I want us to really focus our hearts and minds on, is that John is giving us a practical example of the teaching of Ephesians chapter 4, speaking the truth in love. This is what John is showing. He's teaching us the importance of speaking the truth in love, and he's giving us an example of that as well. But that comes to us from Ephesians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul, he's writing about unity in the church. There had been conflict, there was issues. This is what he had to say. That until you reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He said, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. Is He's giving us this instruction. This is the call. Speak truth and love. This is how unity in the church forms. Because from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up. Love does. So this is really what John is doing in this book. He's giving instruction, speaking the truth and love. And so, he's going to do that through two different ways. Um, one, he's going to encourage this guy named Gaius, He's been doing a good job, and so he's going to speak the truth in love and encouraging him. You're doing great. Keep on keeping on. And then he's going to condemn, and he's going to talk about this other guy named Diotrephes, who's been doing the opposite. He's not been doing so well. He's been doing the opposite of speaking the truth in love, what John calls speaking malicious nonsense, which is my new favorite phrase. He's going to condemn him. And so we're going to look at this short little book, and we're going to see that the book of 3 John... The message to us is this. Speak the truth in love to all. To dear friends and to those who speak malicious nonsense. This is going to be the message of 3 John. So if that gave you enough time, find your way to the book of 3 John. Um, we're going to work our way through it in a few verses. And we're going to talk about it as we go. And I'll have the words on the screen as well. But follow along so that you can see this picture as well as hear it. Because John here, he sent an email to this leader. Now let's snoop into his mail and see what the Holy Spirit preserved for us here. So, 3 John, verse 1, are no chapters. The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is going along well. So quick dig at anyone who says that physical illness is the result of spiritual illness. John is saying here, guys, that good spiritual health, I'm also going to pray for physical health. Quick little note there. He says, It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
So John here, and he's writing to this person named Gaius, um, and he seems to be kind of a leader in the church, but we're not really sure what his role is. John begins with just sweet encouragement, just acknowledging that, hey, you have been walking in the truth, you're following Jesus, and John is happy about that. He's thrilled. Um, just all this encouragement. And John is making it clear that he's heard about what's going on in Gaius' life, he's heard about what's going on in his church. This is a good thing. He's encouraged to hear that Gaius is doing a great job, he's following Jesus. John is explicit in just encouraging him in that. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children. And John, at this point, he's an old man, and this is a term of endearment, right? A, a spiritual son, someone who he has been discipling. Term of endearment here. He has no greater joy than to see that his children are walking in the truth. And this simple little greeting, I think, is the first example that we see of speaking the truth in love. Book of 3rd John here. And I want us to see this, because I know that when we think of Ephesians chapter 4, we think of speaking the truth in love. Um, primarily, we always think about that in terms of like calling someone out, but doing it nicely. Um, we think about it in, in the context of conflict, and that's true. That is how it is to apply, but that's not the only way. Because one of the most important things that we can do to apply this, to speak the truth in love, is also to speak the truth when people are doing well, and to encourage others. Right? We know about speaking the truth in love when it comes to conflict. It's about speaking the truth in love when someone just needs encouragement or when things are going well. Right? That's what John is showing here. When is speaking the truth in love also about encouragement? When fellow Christians are being faithful to Christ, when they're following well, are we being explicit with pointing that out? Of saying, hey, I'm encouraged to see that you're following Jesus. I'm inspired by your faith. Um, and being able to actually recognize those things. Because I don't think we can just hope and think that they, yeah, they know I appreciate them. They know that I, you know, am happy they're my friend or I'm happy they're in my life. I think what John is showing is that we must be explicit with encouragement here. Right? Speaking the truth in love is a value to us. And when someone's being faithful to Christ, the truth is, that's amazing. Praise God encourage them. I think this is really important for us to hear because I know that often we're better at seeing the sin and finding the faults than we are necessarily pointing out what's good. We might not implement the speaking the truth in love until someone is doing something wrong. I think the call of 3 John here is that we need to be as good at seeing faith, as good at affirming faith and faithfulness to God as we are at seeing sin and calling that out. Be as good at calling out faith as we are at home. Being able to see that. We should be able to look around us at the people who are faithfully serving God and be able to say, great job. Keep going. Keep fighting. Pointing out the ways in which those around us are like Christ. Paying attention to the spiritual development in our midst to see like, hey, I remember when you struggled with this, this, and this. And God defeated that in your life. Being able to call that out. This is one of the main calls of John's message here. The example that he's giving us where Gaius, everything was going well. John has kind of a reason and an agenda to write to him that's not great, but he starts out here. Starts out with this encouragement. Starts out with this. So I think this must be something in the foreground of our minds of encouraging dear friends. That's what it means to speak the truth in love. Not just in context of some people are doing good. We have people who are able to call that out to encourage that. That's how John begins. And then he continues. He says, Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a way that please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name, the name of Jesus, that they went out receiving no help from the pagans, which was actually a group back then, a group that was in power. But we thought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people that we may work together for the truth. So what John is doing here is he's encouraging Gaius for supporting these traveling missionaries. Because in the first few decades after the resurrection, the gospel spread was dependent on these traveling missionaries, right? People who would go from town to town, telling about the gospel, or from town to town to these new startup churches 
instructing, instructing them on what it meant to follow Jesus, or delivering the letters that Paul wrote, that John wrote, that Peter wrote, and delivering these teachings to them so that they would know. And here, John is encouraging guys, and he's saying, hey, it's likely that there had been some messenger, some missionary that John had sent to Gaius' church, and he's saying, hey, you treated them really well. You respected them, you loved them. They were really loved and respected by you, and he's commending him for his hospitality. Commending him for his hospitality. Received him well. This is another little thing that we might just gloss over, but the reality is that hospitality for the early Christians was a huge deal, huge value, and continues to be a value for us today. Um, if you've looked through um, the pastoral epistles where Paul was teaching Titus and Timothy, you know, hey, here's kind of how you run a church, you'll see that the requirements for an elder, the requirements for a leader in a church was that they would be, hospi that they would be hospitable, right? That they would practice hospitality. Um, they had to be someone who viewed their personal possessions, their time, their finances, everything, as being given to them by God in order to bless others. This was a requirement for being a leader. This is a huge value for us today. It has been a huge value for Christians throughout the Because this is making clear that we have understood Jesus' teaching, Matthew 25, where he said that I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was hungry and you fed me. Where it makes it clear when we practice hospitality that because of Jesus' love and blessing to us, that we are willing to love others. That we are willing to see, just like Jesus said, that those who are in need, we are to receive with less if it was Christ himself. And so that's what John's commending here. He's commending him to this kind of hospitality. This kind of working together that this church was doing for the people who had been traveling out for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the name. This was an early value. And John is saying that this is how we work together for the truth. Right? This is how we work together for the truth. It's a call for the whole church to see the ministry of these missionaries as everyone's responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. This is how we're a team. Because there might have been specific people who answered that call to go out, to go to the ends of the earth, to spread the gospel. But they can't do it without this church support. He's saying they've answered the call, so we must support them. And today, that continues to be one of our roles. That there are people who have answered the call to leave their home, leave their jobs, and their entire lives, traveling the world to share the gospel with people who have no access to it. And while there are some in this room who will go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel, many of us here are called to Rapid City. Right? We're called to be here. That's a beautiful calling. Our, our communities, our neighbors, our families need to hear about Jesus. Um, but just because we're called here, like I'm called here, I'm called Rapid City, that's where I'm in place in ministry. But just because we're called here doesn't mean that we can just negate the calling to the ends of the earth as well. That one of our roles here is to support those who do have that calling to the ends of the earth. Support those who are going. That's what John is reminding us. This is how we partner in the truth. Right, that these people have responded, we will go, they need help, they need support. So our presence is called to be here, and here and faithful in Rapid City, still means that for those who are called to go, our role is to support them. John's letter here to Gaius, this church, a reminder of that vital role a local church plays. And there was a study done by Barna, which is a research institution. From 2020 to 2022, they were surveying around North America if missions is a mandate for all Christians. They were asking this question, do you believe that missions is a mandate for all Christians? And out of North American pastors, 85% said yes, the mandate for all Christians, um, which is pretty high, but honestly, I'm kind of sad that's not 100%. Um, the numbers get even worse, where among practicing Christians, Barna has this category for people who are very engaged in their faith. 42% said that missions is a mandate for all Christians. And then among all Christians here, which are, aside from practicing Christians, these are people who attend two or fewer uh, gatherings of the church per month. Um, among that group, 22%. It's kind of the perspective on 
It's really a mandate for all Christians here. And I'm thankful that we're part of a church here who breaks that trend. And I'm thankful that we're part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance where we don't view it as just like an option. Um, you know, it's not like Jesus said, you know, if you want to go, if you're not doing anything else this spring break, and like if you've, if you've bought everything you want and you've got some left over, then like maybe you can go. Like Jesus said, no, my command to you is to go. Go and preach the gospel to all nations. Like this is your job. It wasn't an option. Encourage that, that we're people who believe that, that Jesus said that. Um, and the church that, that I grew up in had actually turned 100 years old last year in, in 2022. Um, and it's had this amazing legacy for 100 years. Um, but the church actually almost closed like many years ago. Um, but there was a woman named Bertha Sheets, whose story is told a lot, who was not going to let the church close. Um, because it was in 1937 that the original building had its roof collapsed due to a huge snowstorm. Um, and it was just catastrophic. They didn't have the insurance to be able to cover it. The elders were all upset. Um, and they were saying, you know, we've kind of been struggling. We're a new church only been around for a few years so far. We're just going to have to close. We're just going to have to close. We're going to cease to be a church. That's going to be it. And it was when Mr. Sheets, who was one of the elders, um, made it home after the elder meeting to decide to close this, the church. Made it home when he shared that with his wife, Bertha. She was mad. Um, she was livid. She said, not a chance you will close that church. She said, who will give and pray for our missionaries? She said, where will they go when they come home? How dare you consider closing this church? So Mr. Sheets went back and told the other elders, hey, I'm kind of scared. Uh, I think we should keep this thing going. Um, and 90-something years later, the church continued to thrive, having, you know, five to 6,000 people, sending out dozens of international workers, building schools in the Middle East. It produced a few pastors, um, like myself. So again, it's not all good, but they did do a lot of good um, throughout their history. And it all went back to this lady saying, no, our role here, we have to exist because these workers are going out. We have to exist to support them. We have to exist so that the gospel can spread. Because our end game is clear. Our end game is Matthew 24, 14. Jesus said that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. After that, the cold end, what we're looking forward to is Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, to the Lamb. That's our goal. That's our goal as all people, all cultures, all nations gathered around the throne, worshiping God. Call us to see that in reality. So I think John's message here is a reminder to us of our goals here. Practice teamwork for the truth. We're called here. Rapid City, but how can we also actively engage those who God has called outside of this place? We have to recognize that the presence of our workers over there is dependent on our presence. We are the people who pray those overseas. We're the people who financially support. We send short-term teams, like we've just sent to Mexico, who are on their way now um, to encourage workers down there that have given their lives to serve Christ, and they're going down for a week just to be a shot in the arm, just to be an encouragement with those workers so that they can continue through this next year. We're here so that when international workers need to come home, need to take a break, when they're from the U.S., that they can get respite, they can get care, they can get pastoral care here, and send them on their way. So what it is God has for them. Our task. This guy, Gaius, seems to be just a random guy in southern Europe. Um, we don't know exactly who he was. We know that it's a common name. There's like five different Gaiuses in the New Testament mentioned, and kind of all seem to be different. This random guy from southern Europe, our book of the Bible, dedicated, written to him here, because Jesus. He saw it as his responsibility and as the church's responsibility to support these workers. John is commending So third John, big call for us. Big call 
main purposes in the gathered here. Hospitality. Support of one another, and especially those who have said, do my job, I need to go off, make this spreading of the gospel my job. Added a huge value to us today. Huge value to the earth. God is commanding guys for, for that hospitality. And the rest of John's letter here, and much of the other letters that John has written, are a lot easier to understand, actually, if you read this one little section of the Gospel of John, which is often referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. Um, it's this section from John 14 to 17, which was Jesus' last evening, last 24 hours with the disciples here. And it's a huge section Jesus pouring out these last messages to the disciples. Um, and when you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and actually even when you read the book of Revelation, which John also wrote, you'll see the same kind of message that Jesus said over and over here, just laid out in different ways in the letters. Um, because over and over, Jesus, for four chapters, was kind of saying the same four things, just in different ways, where he's telling the disciples, hey, I'm going to leave, but I will come back for you. So, it's going to be hard, but I promise I'll come back. But he's saying, in the meantime, if you love me, obey my commands. Do this. He's telling him over and over, obey what I've taught you. I've taught you enough. You're going to be okay if you follow what I said. And over and over, he's saying, love one another. Here's my command. Love one another. Here's my command. Show hospitality to one another. Here's my command. Put others before yourself. And he says, that's going to be really tricky, but I'll send the Holy Spirit to help you. And for four chapters, this message is just hammered over and over again. Jesus did not want the disciples to miss it, and it obviously made an impact on John, because he teaches over and over again. Jesus is leaving, we will come back. We love him, obey his commands. That command is love one another. That's going to be hard, but the Holy Spirit will help. Over and over again, this is what he's saying. So John, he's, he's commending Gaius for doing that. Gaius, you're following these teachings. <clears throat> but not everyone in the church is obeying Jesus. So John, he does encourage, but he's also going to have to kind of bring the hammer down on another one. And so in verse 9, we'll continue reading John's letter here. Because John then says to Gaius, he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, um, and some other versions say he loves to be chief, or more literally, he loves the seat of honor. Um, this guy, Diotrephes, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. And not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. So here's the drum. Um, here is probably the purpose that John wrote this letter. Um, John apparently is saying, like, hey, I wrote another letter, and I sent it to you guys. Um, but this guy, Diotrephes, doesn't acknowledge my authority. He didn't welcome this messenger, and he didn't let this letter get read. He wouldn't share it. Um, and this guy, Diotrephes, he must have been some kind of leader, but John's making it clear that he shouldn't be above him, but yet Diotrephes still making it all about us. He likes to be the chief. He likes to be the one seat of honor, and it's his pride there that has led him to, to question John's authority and to prevent John's very important instruction from being read to the whole church. John is saying here, hey, when I get there, I'll take care of it, right? But he's saying, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to bring attention. Another little small tidbit you can pull out of here is, for those of you leaders, hard conversations can't just be delegated. Not everything can be delegated. John is saying, here, guys, I won't put this on you. I will handle it. So that's what he's doing here. He's saying, this is serious. What Diotrephes has done, I'm going to come bring attention to it. And it seems pretty clear that it wasn't just like, hey, a little missionary update that Diotrephes was preventing being read. It wasn't just like, hey, you know, how's funding going? It's like, you know, John had instruction. He had teaching. For the church, Diotrephes wasn't the church. John's authority, and actually the authority of the 12 disciples, was really, really important for the early church to follow that because when Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, we're told that hundreds of people witnessed it. There were hundreds of people who saw it, and the early church was exploding, it was growing very rapidly. But Jesus made it clear that he was leading the leadership, he was leading the oversight of all these hundreds of people. 
at the hands of the twelve who actually walked with him. They knew him personally. They spent years with him. And their authority needed to be respected so that true story of who Jesus is and what he taught be preserved. So the early church, all the early church affirmed the authority of the twelve. Um, but Diotrephes here seems to be denying John's authority. He's saying, uh, I am in charge. We'll prevent him. Even though Jesus is the one who put him there, I'll prevent his message from being read. Um, and John makes it clear he's not only just being rebellious and questioning that authority, uh, but he seems to be lying, speaking stuff up, speaking malicious nonsense. Because instead of speaking the truth in love, that's not malicious. So that's this guy, Dodge. Can't seem to take a back seat, he can't seem to sit under this authority. Um, seems to unwilling to do that. John is saying, hey, this spiritual pride, this loving to be first, dangerous, dangerous thing. You see this all throughout the New Testament in the context of letters written to churches, especially about leadership, is hey, this kind of pride dangerous, not just in leaders, but in the whole church. Romans chapter 16 addresses this very thing. Where Paul said, we're spending chapters talking about divisions and arguments. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and to put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. Keep away from people who are causing these divisions. He's saying, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetite. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of Seems to be what Dodge means that he has twisted in some way to get people to say, like, well, isn't John, like, actually the one who's in charge and who's the one who we should be listening to? And somehow he's twisted that. But this is what John has to do to speak the truth in love, and I think is a good example of us as well. And speaking the truth in love is also correcting this malicious nonsense. That the truth, what Jesus has done, gone against, we have to have the boldness, the same boldness that we can encourage others that are following of Christ. Now, have towards this well, because John's saying, "Don't do that. Don't be that. Oh, don't be that guy. Don't be like that." And it's in verse eleven that John says, "Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Don't be like Diotrephes. Because anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen." It does not know him. That's what he's saying, is that whoever is good knows God. Whoever does evil, it's not from God. This is, again, if you read Jesus' teaching, kind of what he's saying over and over again. Because what John is doing is he's condemning him for, for failing to live by a very simple instruction of Jesus, a very foundational instruction of Jesus. Um, that he's stirring up this conflict. He's dividing them about this. He's bad-mouthing John to others. And John is saying, hey, refusing to acknowledge a foundational teaching of Jesus exposing that he's not following God in this way. Um, and I don't think it's to say that he's not saved or he has zero faith, but John's just saying that this is a very fundamental teaching that he should know. He doesn't seem to care about that aspect of God's care. He doesn't seem to care God wants unity in the body. He doesn't seem to care that Jesus put this authority in place. That's why John makes it about knowing God. Because that's, in essence, what's going to make things right. Going to make things right for Diotrephes, know God. Know what he's taught. Know his character. Because this is what we bring together. John trying to instruct. In order to make things right, bring attention to this. Hey, this is contrary to the ways of Jesus. Contrary to the ways of Jesus, you have malicious nonsense. That's what he's saying. Diotrephes needs to be reminded of who Jesus is, what he's done. Needs to be brought under the management and the authority of Jesus. He's trying to be chief, he's trying to be first. But when things are not under Jesus' authority, they fall apart. They separate. Church gets dislocated and things break, fall apart. John is saying that, hey, we need to we need to unify the disjointed here. Unify the disjointed. It's gotta be built around the person. Because we're told all throughout the Bible, that the church is a body. We're the body of Christ, and we're not the whole body. We're a part of the body. And we cannot say to another part, 
Hey, I don't need you. Um, I would be better off without you. Um, hey, you're kind of in my way. I'm trying to be the only hand here, and this other one's getting in the way. You can't say that. And Diotrephes missed that foundational idea. So, I'm saying, hey, maybe join together. You can't have this dislocation. This Joints are disconnected. When the church is not united, if one of the purposes of the church is to reach the world, of the earth, this dislocation is not going to result in any productivity. I know I've told this story before, and it grosses a lot of you out, but I had a really badly dislocated shoulder in high school in a football game. Um, and you know, in the middle of a football game, you don't really feel all the pain because you're just kind of getting hit all the time, and so you're just kind of numb to that. And so I knew it was pretty bad, but it wasn't in pain. I just thought, you know, it's a stinger. My left arm is just not functioning. It doesn't seem to work anymore. It'll come back. It'll come back, you know, any minute now. And so I continued in for a few plays, um, and then there was one play where I was ran out covering a guy. The ball came right at me, and my arm was just useless, just dangling here. And so I went running after it, just like this. I usually had pretty good hands, and the ball literally, like, hit me in the thigh because I wasn't able to bring my hand up to catch it. And I knew, okay, something's got to be done. And in order for the arm to work again, it's got to be put back in place here. John is writing to say, like, hey, if we're going to get anything done, again, we have to be united to Christ here. We have to have all the joints together, working together. He's saying, John is reminding the readers, need for that. But this is a very foundational command that Jesus gave in John chapter 15, where he says that my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. This is Jesus' command. This is not what Diotrephes was doing. Not what he was doing. This is one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul wrote about speaking the truth in love as well. In the context of conflict, in order to be brought together, truth of Christ, do it in love. It's encouragement, it's calling out the sin that is dividing things, speaking the truth in every situation. And speaking the truth in love isn't the easiest thing to do. You see, Diotrephes is struggling with it. We often struggle with it as well. Um, but we have to recognize that you can't have one without the other. Um, because obviously, truth without love is ugly. And we're probably real likely to say that. But love without truth is ugly as well. Um, because you can view truth kind of like a skeleton, right? It can support quite a bit. It can actually support a lot of weight. Um, but there's no bond. It's not held together. So just a skeleton on its own, it's going to be pretty useless. But love is also like flesh, where if you have all love and no skeleton, you're essentially a beanbag chair. Um, you're not going to be very productive. You're not going to be able to help anyone. Like, there's no form, there's no ability to move, there's no function. Um, you're sweet and soft, might make a good pillow, uh, but not going to get a whole lot done. So we can recognize that with truth without love. Like, well, everything is in place. And it's anatomically correct. You could say it's necessarily wrong here. And there's some strength that can kind of support stuff, but again, truth without love is dead. It's dead. It'll eventually just fall apart anyway. But again, you know, all love, no bones. You're just a bag of meat. Um, all empathy and saying, wow, that's sad. I'll cry for you, but not actually offering any help. Getting done. You're helping no one. Nothing. So we have to recognize these two go together. One without the other. It's just ugly. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Depending on what you are more prone to, Christians are never good at like keeping the bubble in the middle. Um, most of us kind of lean more on one side or the other. Um, and we have to recognize, especially for those of us who maybe are more truth-oriented, we want to lean in that direction like myself. We find that truth and even just like the bones of a skeleton make for a really good club, if you haven't noticed. Um, so when someone is wrong, you're able to just say, you're wrong. Pop on the head. Um, Jesus rose from the dead. You don't believe that? Gotcha. He did walk on water. That's real. Gotcha. And we can't use truth. Good club there. Um, we can't do that because it leads to nothing but death. That can be pulled back. But again, we can't lead too far to the other side, where all we do is feel sorry for people when also need a little bit of help. Maybe they're stuck in this hard place, and it is just a result of life, and it's okay, it's okay. 
kind of but maybe people need us shout to help and say, hey, this can change and this can change. Get you out of this net. Or even be able to recognize, hey, maybe when someone is lying and not telling the truth here, I have to recognize that we need to. Or for those of us who are more oriented towards the love, um, would you recognize that love is important? <coughs> yes. Why do you know that to be true? Without truth, love has to be done. That's what John is emphasizing. He's saying, that's what we do. That's what he's doing for Gaius. That's what he's doing for Diotrephes. Saying, hey, I'm going to come, and I'm going to tell Diotrephes the truth. I'm going to do it in love for the purpose of bringing him back together with community. But it's got to be said. So then, let's finish this letter. Let's finish reading John's email here. We're in verse 12. After condemning Diotrephes there for all the bad that he's done, he finishes up and he says, Demetrius, this other guy, is spoken well of by everyone, and even by the truth himself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. Hope to see you soon. We will talk face to face. He says, Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings and greet the friends there by name. But I think it's funny because the Apostle Paul often had these real elaborate, like, statements, real prophets, this and that benediction, and John's like, all right, see you later. Uh, everybody here says hi. Say hi uh, to everybody else. Um, but also John here, he just ends, um, I think it's kind of funny that he just ends here with his hatred for writing. He's like, ah, yeah, I wish I didn't have to write you a letter. I wish I could come see you in person. And I can really relate to that as someone who absolutely hates phone calls, I don't really like having an email or text a whole lot. Like, let me talk to you in person, please. That way, I like, promise I'm really good in person. I don't ignore you. But if you're making my phone buzz, it's really easy to do. Um, but John here, he's saying face-to-face would be better. But because of the distance and because this is an urgent thing, I'm going to write to you. And we are lucky that even though this is an annoyance for John, we benefit from it. The Holy Spirit preserved it for us. And now we get to learn from John being annoyed here. Um, but I think this little line serves as a bit of a teaching moment for how we approach kind of the whole Bible as well. Um, because the Bible is God's letter to us. Goodness revealed his son. God wrote it down, revealed his plan to us. And I know we often wish, like, well, I wish God would reveal himself to us in a different way. I wish he'd just, like, visit us and make it explicitly clear and just appear to us. Forget all that. But God has chosen to reveal himself in this way. Chosen to reveal himself through this letter. I mean, that seems really lame, but considering the circumstances, we have to recognize that this letter is pretty good and it works pretty well. That Jesus, who told his disciples, I'm going to leave, leave the Holy Spirit with you. I'm going to reveal myself to you, to people, who are going to write it down. This letter is still important. And even the obscure parts, like 3 John, valuable for us, precious. You're familiar um, with the author of Lord of the Rings and other Middle Earth works, J.R.R. Tolkien, and you'll know that right after he got married, he went and he fought in World War I. Um, and he did what writers do, and he wrote letters to his wife a lot. And his wife cherished those letters. She loved them. She loved them so much that she would make copies of them. Um, she would frame some of them. Um, she would do whatever she could to keep these letters because he was far away. She wasn't able to meet with him. Hoped maybe she would see him again. By the way, she was still getting letters from him valued those so much. She kept every single one of them, made a bunch of copies of them. And Tolkien collectors today, they'll spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars on some of those original copies of the letters that he wrote to his wife. If you have ever been in a relationship where you were apart from the other person, then you know just kind of the joy that you get from seeing that notification and seeing their name on it. And you actually finally get to hear from this person that you're not near. And on the arm. It's an encouragement to get through that next season. But now, could you imagine if, you know, Tolkien, he gets back from World War I, um, when he goes up to his wife, Eden, and he goes, hey, you know, did you get my letters? She's like, yeah, you know, I got those letters, but it's not as good as the real thing, and I knew I would see you again, so, you know, I've thrown them all away, um, because, like, that's great, thanks for putting in the effort, but face-to-face is something. You know, he'd probably be a little upset, um, I imagine, because, essentially, for the distance there, this is, this is good to be. Value that, hey, he's speaking. He's reaching out to me. 
And I think we can remember that the Bible kind of works that way as well, that this is essentially, this is God's letter to us. And one day, yeah, we will be with him. One day we'll see clearly. He will reveal it all to us. But he's left us these letters, written to us. We cherish them, we're to value them. And you see that throughout history as the early Christians made copies, saved each and every document here. John's little email here was copied thousands of times by people who recognize that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is unique. It might not be as good as the real thing where it's like, okay, well, we want God to reveal ourselves in this way. We always want just dramatic healing. We always want this. This is a simple good reminder that, like, okay, in person might be better. Face-to-face might be better. This is still pretty good. Considering the circumstances, considering that we are still awaiting his return, this letter that we have, this revelation, to us, valuable, it's to be cherished by us. And as we read it, hold hunger and thirst for more. Read this, be reminded of one day when we get to see. Now we have these kind of obscure little letters, but one day we'll see clearly. One day we'll all be free. These, these build up that hunger. We read these little weird sections of the scripture, it builds that hunger, it builds that desire. So one day you will return. You will get to see this. Third John, short, here, kind of strange, but it's God's letter to us. Reminding us of his truth, our responsibility to carry on what he commanded, to love one another, speak the truth in love, not just in conflict, though, speak correction when that's true, but also speak encouragement. Speak encouragement to others when that's true. Do it all. That's the shortest book I have Let's pray. We'll continue on in worship. So, Father God, um, we just thank you for revealing yourself to us. We just thank you for being a God who has spoken to us. Commit to being a people who listen. Who listen to your word. Who listen to that still small voice. Um, who approach these, these words on the page that sometimes feel too far for us to grasp or to understand and see this connection too strange for us. But we thank you for giving your Holy Spirit to help us. So now, God, as we just consider all that you've called us to, to speak the truth and love to those around us, would you just show us um, this week who it is that you're calling us to speak encouragement to? Um, how you're working in the lives of those closest around us and give us the courage to actually make a comment about that. And God, if you just give us the courage to speak correction to those closest to us when it's needed. And that we would be a people who value unity in the body, who value the body being together and no joints out of place, no parts thinking that they don't need the other parts, God. Would you help us to be agents of that unity? Um, and God, as we consider just our role here in supporting work to the ends of the earth, would you help us to know how it is that we can support? And we just pray for our team in Mexico. Pray for people like the Schlachmans, for Vanessa, who have answered this call to go out and see your gospel preached to people who don't have access to it, even if they want it. God, help us here in Mountain City to be one of our roles as being hospitable, being a support to them. So Jesus, we just thank you for this call. We commit to being people who live it out. So would your Holy Spirit empower us to do that. And now we turn to you in praise. It's in your name that we pray.
so Common Ground Church, now as you go, I'm going to go with the words of 1 John chapter 5. Now we know also that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ, because he is the true God. He is eternal life. Grace and peace, Common Ground. Thank you for being here. Have a wonderful week.